Hello, welcome to Legally Different. It's Lauren here, your host. So what can you expect from this episode? I interviewed Imar McCann, who is the commercial director of a legal tech company, and she's also a lecturer in immigration and EU law. Ema has had such a unique and interesting path into and around law. She grew up in Northern Ireland, where she really got a sense for what inequity looks like. And that was her initial draw into law. But her early professional years were spent as a writer. She decided to pursue her passion for writing. And then life had a slightly different plan when she found herself as an immigration lawyer. She pivoted into immigration law and really dealt with some gritty, real immigration cases during that phase, which you'll hear about. And then again, another pivot came along, which she shares the details about, but um, in very short terms, led her to legal tech. And what she loved about legal tech, um, what the key draw was, was the intersection between law and creativity. And creativity is a huge theme of Ema's journey. And we discuss it quite a lot, actually. It's a really interesting talking point. Ema has a lot of insightful shares around the subject of creativity. She's actually created a group about creativity in law, which she invited me to join. And together with a few other people, we've hosted a couple of panel talks so far, all about creativity in law, different angles to it, really. I think often creativity is associated with traditional forms of expression such as art, music, which are both amazing and beautiful and incredible talents, but actually discussing about different ways in which we're all creative and how law is creative and can be creative and the future of law with creativity in mind and all sorts of interesting things. So yeah, we dive into some of those um, topics. And yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to share to give you a little flavour of the episode. Oh, just to flag as well, at the time of recording this, Ema was working for a legal tech company called Surmise. So you'll hear her share about Surmise. She's recently transitioned from them because we recorded this a little while ago um, and is working for an Irish legal tech company now. So just to flag that because it's not strictly correct that she still works as Surmise. Um, but yeah, it's interesting here to hear about that part of her journey. Um, yeah, I shall leave it there. As always, if there's anything you particularly resonate with, do feel free to reach out and share it with me. I love it when people leave thoughtful reviews when they've taken something away from an episode or the podcast in general, because yeah, that really helps the podcast. So yes, I shall leave it there. And thank you so much for tuning in. Hey, Emma, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Lauren. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks so much. It's awesome to have you on. So... Um, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So many different things to dive into. I love all the different parts of your journey. So like multifaceted. You've been involved in so many different things and I particularly enjoy or I'm interested in the like creative side that you're bringing to things. So I'm sure we'll dive into that a bit more. But maybe just starting right back at the beginning, I'd love to know what your path was into law. And yeah, what inspired you kind of to follow the legal path and and what did that path look like? Yeah, I mean, I think if I'm really, really transparent about it, it was probably a, a bit of an accidental lawyer. And, um, you yeah, know, whenever I, I was leaving uh, secondary school, the career advice was very much about it, you know, getting a vocation and 
I think that it was difficult to navigate away from that unless perhaps you had guidance from, you know, external guidance, for example. So, um, and I actually did law with Spanish probably uh, because my sister did law with Spanish and seemed to have an absolutely amazing year out in Madrid. (laughs) So I have to say that did really appeal to me. And I think as well, deep down, perhaps, which I am aware of, um, you know, coming from Northern Ireland, um, I think we, you know, grew up with a really deep sense of what equity and inequity looked like. Um, So probably at the heart of that, there was a bit of a idealism and, and ways that law could be used to, you know, change the world. So there's big ambitions there that were probably coupled with very kind of generic career advice. Um, but whenever I did law with Spanish, I did, I loved the Spanish side of it, but I did find the academic part of law, I found it quite dry. Um, I mean, we're talking 20 odd years ago, <laughs> but I didn't overly enjoy law at undergrad level. So whenever I graduated, I actually took uh, a graduate job writing for a magazine. And after that, I worked as a freelance writer, which was brilliant. I absolutely loved it. But then I ended up going back into law again, um, which was slightly accidental in that I bumped into an old friend who said, like, I think you would really actually enjoy the practice of it a lot more than the academia. And I think I was already at a crossroads of thinking I've really enjoyed the writing, but I kind of just really wanted something different and a bit of a challenge. And I think that, you know, that maybe a latent desire to explore law and see whether it was something that I did definitely want to do. So, um, so yeah, then I ended up doing the LPC and I did actually really, really enjoy the LPC. And then I started off my training in, in London. And then, yeah, I went into litigation before moving into uh, immigration public law, which was probably the the part of law that I really, really loved. Um, and I, I did work for a law centre for about five years. And, and for me personally, that was kind of like the the holy grail of, of law for me because of what it represented and what the culture was like within the law centre. And also the the challenging aspect of it, you know, you were doing everything from initial advice right through to strategic cases before the ECJ. So yeah, absolutely loved it. Wow. Interesting. And I sense that with the immigration law and the passion for that, it's, it, it like enabled you to fuse in that the initial desire. One of the reasons you got into law was that justice element. So I guess it, it was a tangible way of kind of putting that into practice as well. Yeah, I know. And you're, you're probably totally right. And I think sometimes, you know, self-awareness is such a, a massive <laughs> boundary for, for all of us. And I think that kind of dichotomy between what we should do and what we really want to do and always that tension. And whenever I look back, I, I can see that there was stuff I did that I felt that I should do when in fact, what I really wanted to do was probably to pursue something a bit more like that. And it also... I think tapped into that creative desire that I had because a lot of it was, you know, tech in cases that we then pulled together, you know, and we had kind of what we wanted to properly change the law and set a precedent so that we had other families and other individuals who didn't have to go through, you know, what a, what a client had gone through and those kind of cases I loved. And I used to work late all the time because I wanted to. And I used to be, because of the law center ethos was very much about, 
flexibility and actually home working even back then. But it was different from that private practice mentality of you have to be seen to be here. You know, unlike leaving early could be, you know, half eight in the evening, whereas that was, I actually wanted to, and I think that probably is because it came from very much from a place of, of passion, as, as you said. Mm, yeah, interesting. And I totally hear you on that, the struggle between shoulds and yeah, and what, what you truly felt passionate about. I think it's part of all of our journeys. And as you say, the more you become self-aware, the more you can kind of identify those. But yeah, it's interesting. So it sounds like, yeah, genuine passion for that area of law and what you were doing kind of drove you. It fueled your fire during during that period. At what point did you, because obviously you then transitioned out of immigration law. How did that happen? Um, what, what, what juncture did you get to to think, oh, maybe I should make a change? Yeah, I think it was just a bit of a, um, a myriad of factors, really. I um, we So I was at a law centre in Belfast and, and we moved to Manchester because of my husband's work. And I was on maternity leave at the time, but the, really sadly, the law centre lost the funding for the immigration work, mm. which was just a reflection of the political landscape at the time, obviously. But then I ended up back in the world of private practice and I just got the feeling again of, feeling a bit suffocated <laughs> mm. um, and that I needed to get out. I just kept getting the same, I need to get get out, but I wasn't quite sure what to do because I think it is re- really tricky to move out of law, but it's also actually very difficult to move within law, you know, from, for example, immigration and then other sectors. So I had just kind of reached the point where I thought, I- I'm just going to have to get really creative about how I get out of this. And I had at that point, yeah, I had two. Yeah, I had um, a, a toddler and a, and a newborn, I think. So I was already starting to think I, I need to really have a bit of flexibility as well, which, you know, private practice isn't exactly, I suppose, uh, renowned for its flexibility. It wasn't back then. Um, and I don't mean to sound really critical of private practice, by the way, but it was just my experience of it. But um Oh no, definitely. And that's a a common theme. (laughs) I hear a lot. (laughs) Funny as I said these things, I think, gosh, am I sounding overly harsh? No, Um, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) But um, but yeah, I'm preaching to the converted. But I am, yeah. So then I thought, well, what can I do? So um, I actually set up on my own for a bit, um, uh, created my own website, et cetera, and then realized that actually it wasn't, (laughs) it wasn't actually about having that full freedom and autonomy it was that I had actually just had enough of the practice of law and I found that I found more enjoyment from the creation of my website than the practice of law and I thought I would be doing clients a disservice because I think when you do immigration cases whether it's asylum trafficking corporate whatever it is you have to give it your all you have to be passionate and you have to really care if you're going to go in and argue for someone's life a lot of the time <laughs> arguably at the tribunal so I thought no I would it's a it's just time to leave so that was around the time that I'd started to hear more about legal tech and I thought god gosh that sounds really interesting because it's kind of at the intersection of law and creativity so I thought well what how do I do that and how do I get there so that was really when I started to to look for roles in in the world of legal tech Mm, yeah that creative side of you coming out again 
And just before we move on to that and, and kind of staying on the immigration piece, it sounds like you're really passionate about that work up to a point until you're back in private practice. But um, I'm curious to know, it sounds like quite like intense and real work, like some of the kind of cases you just touched on there. Did you ever kind of feel the pressure of that or, you know, did you feel like your mental health affected at all or anything dealing with like those real live cases or did you feel like you had certain tools to deal with it or you just didn't feel affected as such? Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, I did. I definitely did. Um, there was a couple of cases that I remember really, they just really got to me and there were, um, particularly the ones that involved kids, uh, teenagers who had been trafficked. Obviously, there was those elements of torture and abuse and, and really horrific stuff that they had endured. And uh, yeah, it, did, it definitely did get to me. And it was, it was funny because I always remember one case, I, my kind of relief and my way of managing it was to run. <laughs> you know, so I just go for a run and it, it always just, to me, I processed it and understood it. And, um, but there was one case that just even when I actually remember going for a run and I actually was crying while I was running because I could not get the case out of my head. Um, so yeah, there were, and I think that's it. Whenever you are totally immersed in those kind of cases, as you say, you need to have the tools, you need to have the support. Mm-hmm. And I think the law center offered that support because we were all kind of in it together and we understood and it was nearly like doing a debrief without having a formal sit down meeting as such but so yeah it definitely did and I think as well when I had kids I thought can I give it as much at that time so yeah definitely and it's really interesting actually because you think of of so many people who who work in in so many areas of law where they are totally immersed in it and I wonder whether there is the the support and you know the tools that to kind of help them because it is really, really tough. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's a big piece, um, like concentrating on kind of filling up your own cup and dealing with any, yeah, emotional traumas and things like that, I think is, yeah, a really important piece. And it's hard with that kind of work because it it calls heart-centered people, but also potentially they're also the most sensitive to those kind of things as well. So yeah, having that support is key. And it sounds like you had that at the centre that you were working with initially. So like moving on to kind of a a lighter topic, I guess, and like exploring (laughs) your creativity. So what was next for you then? So you'd become curious about the legal tech side of things. So how did that door open to you? What was your first role in that world? Yeah, so I I got a a brilliant role with uh, Flex Legal, which is a legal tech company that essentially matches up on-demand um, or matches up, sorry, law students and paralegals for kind of on-demand ad hoc rules and probably appealed to me for, for loads of reasons because it was helping law students get their foot in the door. It was kind of leveling the playing field because it was very much about looking at who the person was rather than a CV, you know, because it was all done by we, you know, every interview was was done on, we had like a little video of, of every candidate, every law student, um, every paralegal. So it meant that the person who was doing the hiring could actually see a bit about the person rather than just seeing a black and white CV. And I think that's really, really powerful. So yeah, amazing. It brings a more human element to it, doesn't it? Yeah, completely. And I think what what I find most interesting was that a lot of the time, 
you know, the GC or the partner, whoever was making the decision did end up choosing somebody that they said they wouldn't normally have chosen on the back of a CV. So, you know, it, obviously it works. But yeah, so that was my first role, really. I um, They wanted somebody to set up their northern office in Manchester. And in the past, I'd actually been an office manager for a, a firm in, in Northern Ireland as well. So, so it was kind of just all those different bits, I suppose, coming together. But um, but yeah, it was very, very different to working in immigration and, and human rights, definitely. Wow, that's quite a role, like being in charge of setting up their northern office in Manchester. Um, amazing. And so how long did you stay there for? And, and what was your next transition? Yeah, so I think it was, I should know this, shouldn't I? Um, I think it was about a year and a half, really, I was with them. Um, and then I actually met Tom, who's the founder of Samize. We were actually helping him out with the project whenever he was working as a legal director. Um, but he was just really passionate about changing the contract automation space. And he had this this vision. And when I this was he was still working full time. Um, but he was already talking about what he had this vision for Samize and what it was going to look like. Um and then whenever he was kind of formally getting started, I suppose, and it already got a bit of a well, a small team around, then um, we kind of had a chat about, you know, working or how I could have a role, I suppose, with Samize. Um, so that was, I started with Samize in November 2019, I think. Past year has been such a blur that the dates in my head are, I don't trust them. <laughs> I know, same. Yeah. <laughs> um but yeah so uh yeah my role is head of strategy so it's I mean in really simple terms it's probably about seeking out opportunities you know whether that is from a marketing content perspective building uh relationships with with potential clients and I suppose really looking at what our strategy is overall moving beyond the UK so it's really interesting because it's startup world which means it does kind of feel like a bit of a, an adventure, which appeals to me a lot. Mm, yeah, yeah, totally different from what you've done before. And um, yeah, for anyone listening, there is an episode with Tom, Tom Dunlop, the founder of Surmise, which um, by the time this comes out, I think it will be, I think the one with Tom will be episode one or two. So you can head back and listen to that. But yeah, so why why do you love working for surmise, why does this kind of role appeal to you? I know this is a theme, isn't it? This creative thing, but um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I just love that there is creative freedom that flows throughout the organisation. So it's not just within, you know, the dev team and the road mapping. It's sales and marketing, and I think I really, really like the fluidity of it. But and obviously you've spoken to Tom, but I just think that kind of passion to really create something where it really solves a problem so it's not a a generic platform that promises to do everything I mean I think that's probably where the hype with legal tech kind of just slumped when people thought well actually there isn't one size fits all so I love that I love the vision and I think it's a really creative collaborative place to work and it kind of reminds me of that law center ethos which is that you know doors are always open you kind of you can talk to anyone within the company and said you have you know time to just have a brainstorm or a chat you know from the CTO sales team marketing and I think because 
it probably comes from Tom, to be honest. I think whenever you've got someone who is a leader, who really has a very strong vision and how they really want the company to look, how they want the product to, to look, it all filters down. And I think it's kind of fostered then by, by everyone that, that he's brought on, essentially. Yeah, I definitely get the sense of that from speaking with you and Tom, like about the ethos about surmise that really comes through. And you're also a lecturer, that's right, isn't it? Alongside your work for surmise. Yeah, so been a visiting lecturer, I think, for about a year now at the University of Law. So I'm teaching EU law and immigration, which is, well, for me anyway, I just still really enjoy it. I think it's that, I mean, it's a bit of a challenge teaching EU law at the moment when we've, you know, left the EU. But yeah, really interesting. And I think for me, it's important that I'm still very much tapped into our future lawyers because I feel I'm kind of at both ends of the spectrum. It's legal tech is where we're all predicting that everything is going and the kind of change in legal delivery. And then at the other end of the spectrum, you've got law graduates who are a lot of them very anxious about what that future will look like. So I just, I'm very interested in any cohesion between all the different strands. Um, because I just think it's so important, you know, we can change as much as we want right now, but we need to really, really, I think, reimagine what the future is going to look like. And it's not an easy task, but we have to kind of look at what law students are thinking and, and what their anxieties are. Um, and I think what's really important is that law students understand and get access to you know the kind of the tools and the tech that they're going to be utilizing in the future because otherwise they're going to be have skills which may potentially be <laughs> defunct perhaps in in five years time who knows yeah absolutely yeah it, it instills me with a lot of hope that you are teaching the, the future generations of lawyers and that you have that that kind of outlook when it comes to it because I think you're a great example of like being innovative in law, um, changing career directions, um, and just showing them it doesn't have to be this one set path. And you can bring in your creativity and innovation to 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 your path and, and to the kind of work you go into. So obviously you're a huge pioneer for creativity in the legal space. Why in particular do you think that's important? And how do you think that can benefit the legal world? Yeah, I, I, I just think it's so important in, in general. Um, I just think that creativity to me equates to freedom of expression. And there's just such a strong nexus between that and mental health. And obviously, as we touched upon earlier, the, there's a crisis, um, within legal, um, not just in the UK. It's, it's, it's global, isn't it? Um, True. but also I just think we, need to be resilient as 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 people as businesses and the thing that i think really really drives that resilience is creative thinking and you know tech whenever you all i keep thinking is how powerful our imaginations are and every material thing that we touch and look at was once only a concept or an idea in someone else's imagination and i, I always think about that when i think of what we're moving towards in the future and we are what kind of sets us apart I suppose as a species is that creativity and that imagination and you know I think that there's something really liberating about removing restrictions diversifying 
you know, you're thinking, and I think that's lacking in legal, has been historically lacking. Um, and I think, and I'm sure you've seen this because you've had such a kind of diverse background as well, but there's, I kind of feel that whenever there is an atmosphere of creative thinking, brainstorming, there's a tangible shift in energy in the room. And I, I just find that fascinating. And I think it's so, so important. And I mean, I could talk about this all day, but I just, the neuroscience behind it fascinates me. <laughs> we are mm. all wired to create. And what's really interesting is that when they study how the brain functions when we're involved in creative tasks have discovered that the whole brain becomes involved in a kind of complex dance, you know, between all the different kind of parts and the conscious and unconscious, etc. And, you know, this whole myth of right brain, left brain. Yeah. So I just feel we're all wired to create. It's it should be all pervasive. And it's not just the domain of, of the elite few. And I think so much of it's about mindset and being told as a lawyer that you are a certain way and we love to label people but I just think homogeny to me is is the death of innovation and creativity is the one thing that that kind of I suppose implodes <laughs> homogeny mm-hmm. and, and gives us new ideas and new thinking and yeah I'm going to stop talking about it now because I, I could just talk about it for hours. <laughs> no you shared so many amazing nuggets during that um yeah amazing and I'm, I'm so with you on all of that and I feel like yeah the more we ignite our creativity the more like lit up and alive we are in general and the more we invite other opportunities into our life other ideas and it's not just this I think people associate being creative with painting and stuff. And yeah, that stuff is great. Do that if you feel called to it. And Explore My Own Creativity has brought that side of things out. But it it, it can be much more subtle than that. And in terms of, I don't know, how we live and and things like that. So I think you're absolutely right. And um, I love that you're interested in the neurological side. It's it's a part I don't really understand that much. And um, you touched there on the left brain, right brain myth. Why in particular do you call that a myth as such? Is it because you believe, as you say, the whole brain is ignited? Yeah, so whenever I started um, exploring creativity and I was kind of wondering, what is it that, why is there a reticence within legal? And then I just started basically doing very uh, very superficial research, by the way, um, but I just thought it was really interesting that the studies show that the whole brain is lit up and it, they described it as a complex dance, you know, so it's not as if, you know, you, there are people who only use one side of their brain or that side of their brain whenever they're being creative. It's all of it. There's a big network and there's all these neural pathways and there's loads of communication going on. Um, what is interesting though, and this is a long time since I've read it, but I'm sure it was along the lines of creative people make more connections more readily but also in the brain that kind of connection and all the activity that's going on is a lot more fired up within the brains of creative people but it isn't as though a creative person is someone who is as I said before just you know a a kind of an elite human or something you know what I mean so it's it's all of us and brain plasticity exists and therefore the more that we start thinking creatively and do things in a creative way, the more the more creative parts of our brain start to work. 
Mm -hmm. I'd love to really understand it more, but um, but yeah, that's my very simplistic take on the on the neuroscience. But I just find it fascinating. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Me too. Yeah, because I'd always understood it in that very separate manner. Like your right brain is the creative side, the left brain's the logical. Um, but yeah, you made me curious to read into that even more. And I love how you explained that the the creative the creative dance in the brain. Did you say? I think they're describing as a complex, yeah, a complex dance that happens with all the little different networks. Um, I was also really interested to read that apparently we had lots of different imagination networks, which was also a source of intrigue. <laughs> I have to go back to that one. <laughs> Amazing. So if someone's listening to this and thinking, oh, that's all well and good, but that's not going to help me when I'm sat at my desk and I have a very tangible legal problem to solve it just needs logical thinking and that's it logical thinking logical application it's very linear I just don't see how creativity is 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 meant to help me what what would you say in response to that I mean it does depend on on the problem doesn't it but I just feel as though there is this (laughs) kind of notion that creativity and structure are mutually exclusive and I always think of something like a novel. I mean, if we just free-flowed and wrote and wrote and wrote without structure or without some kind of logic or form, it would just, well, who would read it? (laughs) Who would publish it? Um, And I think the same even in terms of graffiti. I mean, I just think that there's a, a time for creativity there's a time to be incredibly pragmatic but what what interests me is for you know this is totally anecdotal but I have a friend who always describes herself as she always says that she's not creative she always talks about um being a pragmatist but she's always coming up with really creative ways to do things that none of us would ever have thought of and they seem logical but she's just going around solving problems in a way that no one else has thought of and to me that is creativity and I think a lot of it is self-talk So the person who's saying, but I'm just sitting at a desk, I'm doing a logical task. Yeah, maybe there's logic involved. You know, there's logic involved in if I have to to write an article, it's a creative process, but there is a logic there. I have to find a logical structure. I have to move through. I've got a kind of theme, got a conclusion, et cetera. So I think giving ourselves permission in the first place to think, actually, I am creative then opens up your mind to the possibility that if I am creative, then maybe I could do that and then I could do this and then I could do other things that then lead. I don't know. I think it's like a snowball effect. Mm. That's just my take on it. But I, I think, especially when I, you know, hear people say they're not creative, I, it just makes me wonder how it's not just legal. I think it's just the way that we have been educated from childhood. Yeah, I agree. It definitely felt like when I was going through the school system, you were channeled either into the academic subjects or the artistic subjects. And I remember liking both and and like wanting to do both, but it wasn't an option. And I definitely had in my mind that if you want to be quote unquote successful, society's version of successful, you had to choose the academic route and almost creativity doesn't matter. But I love how you explained it there. It's about the fusion of both and the balance of both. Like if you're doing a logical task, creativity can assist. If you're doing a typically creative task, logic needs to exist as well. They like go hand in hand. I completely agree with you. I think we we tend towards binary 
explanations, don't we? And you're right. It's like, see, I was the same at school. I just thought, but I actually like all of those. Why am I being? <laughs> yeah, I was kind of told, and I think it's funny because my my mum was um her background was art and design, so and she had like a studio, and that was where all the art lived. Wow, do you know what I mean? But that was where it lived, and I think we also have that con- notion as well that it, it has its place, mm. you know, and that didn't pervade. It was as if that wasn't allowed to pervade the rest of the the household, and and. I mean, I'm sure it did, but it always felt like everywhere else was very tidy and everything. And then the studio was just full of, uh, I don't know. I just think it's interesting. I think it's just how we've been, um, how we've been trained to think. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I see what you mean. That's interesting as well, that your mum was that creative in like the traditional sense as well. So I guess you inherited that and definitely from speaking with you, it definitely has come through in different ways. And your Spanish yeah. and doing Spanish, a Spanish and law degree kind of is a good example of like a traditional academic meets a more creative. I mean, it's still language is still logical, but you are using different parts of your brain for that. It's kind of like a good example of that fusion, I guess. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was a really nice balance, actually. Um, I mean, the year out in, in Spain helped. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Where did you go in Spain for your year out? I went to Salamanca. Okay, but it was such a beautiful city it was amazing oh awesome yeah yeah but that definitely helped amazing (laughs) and then I I see you've written a blog called disruptive by design and I just love the title of it it really grabbed me what exactly do you mean by the term disruptive by design I just I I really feel that we're moving very much towards uh, a world where design is kind of everything you know and I don't just mean design thinking I mean about designing how we work where we work how we use technology um and I think that it's for me anyways very much about designing solutions tailored to your business and that was kind of what we had like a a workshop um that I did with a group of lawyers and I just thought it was really interesting when they were looking at concepts like cross-pollination and how they could take aspects of that um, you know and use that to kind of design their ways of working um, or their kind of vision and I I just love the idea that actually how we're going to really change things is to to really tap into that design element and I know that you you're kind of you're really passionate about design as well so I, I think that you hopefully you know where I'm I'm going with that one. Definitely. I so get that. And I guess particularly I can speak to working ways because from my experience, just completely changing up the way I worked unlocked so much and changed my life. So like living living and working from Bali as a digital nomad, even the t- times I just completely changed my environment. I was working from creative work, co-working spaces working on different um, time zones, even just changes like that, that apart from living on the other side of the world, but just smaller changes with your environment really unlocks so much in me. And I could, even when, when I was doing like legal work rather than my creative work, well, I don't really want to put them in boxes because there can be two in the same, but I felt <laughs> so much creativity. I felt so alive in a different environment doing that work. And it just taught me that, environment, working ways, working times are so important. 
And yeah, that just kind of since then has just changed my perspective on everything. And, you know, I'm in the UK now and some of the things I've learned from that time and really changing things up in a huge way, I've brought back with me and like really bring into my day-to-day routines and make sure I'm experimenting with my workspace and and the times I work and where I work and things like that, because I know it really... um, yeah, ignites that creativity in me and, and that aliveness and passion for whatever I'm, whatever work I'm doing and, and channeling. That's so interesting. And I think it's something that we <laughs> have all had to, I suppose, navigate. It was in the past 16 months or so, isn't it? Kind of. True. Yeah. There was no kind of, all the lines had become so blurred, hadn't they? And there was I actually felt at one point that it was just complete stagnation, you know, until you were able to like move into get out and about again and, you know, have a break, you know, an actual tangible break between where you're living. And, you know, and I think that's, I wonder if I'd be really interested to know if that has led to a lot of people rethinking and noticing how, where they feel more energized, you know, that kind of thing that you're talking about. Mm. obviously not the same as going and living in in Bali which sounds absolutely amazing but you know what I mean (laughs) definitely yeah because like basically overnight people's homes became their workplaces their schools like you've had your children at home um, it became everything so yeah like you say can become very stagnant and I guess that's when it becomes really important to create certain spaces for certain things maybe is like one way to go about it yeah and be really mindful of your environment but I appreciate there's only so much you can do in, in those circumstances. Yeah. Um, but it is um, it has led to some really interesting, I guess, solutions. So I'm seeing, I don't know if you've noticed them, a, a couple of startup companies pop up that are um, creating like outdoor offices, like effectively garden sheds, but they're geared up more to be an office. I thought that was an awesome creative idea. If you've got the money to afford that, like, um, it creates a separate space from the house and like you can be in nature and thought that was a really good idea. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I think there's a lot of places that had turned, they turned like their, their bars and cafes into like co-working places, didn't they, during? Yeah, true. Yeah. I'm not quite sure how that worked, but I remember just reading lots of really interesting stuff and thinking that that, that was just fantastic and it was just proving the link between creativity and resilience going back to the the kind of earlier point really true yeah really good point like yeah in a time of yeah time of resilience and and where things are changing like there are I guess when when opportunities seem like grayer there are moments for opportunity and creativity like phoenix out of the flames like what can you create from this and what will evolve from this situation Another thing I'm noticing because I'm tapped into like the digital nomad community is is more as more people work remotely and maybe think, well, I don't have to be in the ba- based in the UK or wherever. Where could I live or where could I spend a bit of time? Obviously, subject to travel restrictions and stuff, which I've done for the last few years, but I've seen that really open up um, in a next level way. So, different countries creating. Um, remote working visas um like madeira has just created the first digital nomad village um everything set up i think they help you with 
any visas, there's co-working spaces, a community to help you with accommodation. And I spent a bit of time in three months in Mexico last year. And yeah, just kind of experimenting, seeing if I wanted to live there longer term. And I noticed a huge uh, pattern there of lots of Americans moving there with their with their families as well, because school was online, work was online. Um, so yeah, definitely like the travel and living patterns um, are potentially going to change from this. There was a really interesting um, podcast I listened to. And of course, you can't remember the name of the podcast or the person who was speaking, <laughs> but I will send it to you. But they were talking about this, how it's nearly as if tribes have been formed within kind of the cloud that have then, you know, obviously online in different communities, which have then uh, migrated to tangible physical communities, you know, in different places, which is perhaps a bit of what, like what you were talking about, which I find so interesting. It was nearly like we were all locked down, dispersed, kind of stuck, planted where we were. And then everybody formed these brilliant communities. And then some of them actually decided, well, let us, once we're able to, take our online community and make it into something physical, which is kind of nearly going full circle. I just, it's yeah. so interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, there's so much within that, isn't there? And like, yeah, connection to our tribal roots and things and what community, what community means. Um, yeah. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I love how you're fusing the creative side with everything you're doing. And I think you're doing some really pioneering things and showing it is possible as well. Like, all the roles you take on, like your walking, talking example of like fusing creativity and logic and, and, and being pioneering and innovative. I'd love to know. Um, so this is one question that I ask all guests. If you could go back and speak to that earlier version of you, let's say you were, when you're still in immigration law in private practice and you were starting to feel off and like, hmm, this isn't my path anymore. What advice would would you give to her now uh, with the benefit of hindsight and the experience that you have? Gosh, does everybody say that's a really tricky question or is it just me? Yeah, Um, (laughs) yeah, it's a tough one. (laughs) I probably would give myself some some reassurance and say, don't worry, you will will get out. You will escape. (laughs) Sorry. No, I just, um, yeah, I think that. And I think... um, for me, actually, when you think of what holds people back, and I think most of the time, well, it depends on your personality, but for me, it wasn't that I didn't want to change or was afraid of anything new. It was more, how do I make this work financially? Because for me, I really had thought about retraining completely, but I couldn't find a way to make that work financially for me, that I could go back and say, do a master's or study for a bit. Um, and I think that's a massive barrier. So um but yeah, I suppose I'd probably go back and say, give some kind of reassurance, but probably as well, looking back. Um, and it's hard when you're in a situation, isn't it? It's easier looking back, which is obviously the whole point. But um, <laughs> I think probably looking back would be, because what I was basically trying to do was get out of the whole world of legal completely. So, I mean, I must have looked up, I don't know how many careers I was trying. I was kind of thinking, oh, I, could, I, I could do this, I could do that, whatever. But as I said, it was budgetary constraints more than um you know a lack of desire to to do something different but I think it would probably be you know focus a bit more on where you are right now and what's kind of going on around you because I think there was probably stuff a bit closer 
without me having to go out there and explore, oh, maybe I should become an interior designer or whatever it might be that was kind of going through my head. And I think in a way you have to go through that process of elimination in order to reroute yourself. But yeah, probably that. And I think something that was really helpful for me, and I think I had to go on that kind of journey, was I removed all reference to law and legal in my CV to kind of reimagine what my whole career path had looked like and how applicable it could be to something completely different. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting. Um, I mean, it didn't really get me away from legal in the end, but um, to be honest, I'm really happy to be in legal. I'm just, I think that's probably would be the, um, the biggest lesson for me was that it wasn't that I wanted out of legal completely. I just didn't want to practice law in that setting anymore. So. Mm. <laughs> yeah that's similar to my journey and um yeah I love what you say there actually taking all of the legal out of your CV I think that's actually a really good tip when you're trying to I've not thought about this till you said it but a good tip if you're trying to j- drill down into what your skills are and what your experience is because sometimes we can get too caught up with the with the labels like a legal executive a lawyer a senior this that and the other but it's like well what is that what what did you really do what did you create what did you help so I think that was yeah a really useful tip on that front um and what makes you legally different <laughs> um oh I don't know I um I suppose I've just even when I was doing my training contract I was always told I wasn't a typical lawyer so I don't know whether I um I don't know that I've ever really slotted into people's expectations of what a lawyer should be, but it's going back to that whole labeling thing. It didn't impact on professionalism. It didn't impact on how much I cared about my clients' cases and the outcomes. But I probably am legally different in the sense that I am always looking for creative ways of of doing things and actually embrace it rather than setting it to one side and being reticent to even use the terminology. So that's probably been the main theme I think through this competition (laughs) yeah yeah definitely yeah that's the thing I'd pick up with you that fusion of creativity and questioning things and um yeah being a pioneer for creativity and I love what you say there you've always been told you don't seem like um a normal traditional lawyer and yeah I think that's a compliment definitely (laughs) (laughs) Oh, amazing. Well, yeah, that brings us to the end. Just for anyone listening, how could they connect with you personally and um, find out more about Samise? Yeah, probably the best place is going to be on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, Samise is there as well. And obviously our website is samise.com. Um, you can get in touch with me there as well. I'm sure my my email address is up there. Fab, thank you. Yeah, and I'll link all that in the show notes anyway. Um, but yeah, amazing. Oh, thanks so much for chatting. It's been, yeah, really interesting. And I've loved diving into the creativity piece with you. Oh, it's been brilliant, actually. It's been quite um, cathartic as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, um, I've experienced that with interviews before, um, digging into different things. And yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much, Lauren. Amazing. You're welcome. See you soon and that's a wrap on that episode thank you so much for tuning in what did you get from it i'd love to hear from you any thoughts new perspectives views 
I love hearing from people, so feel free to reach out. And if this podcast has positively benefited you in some way, I'd love it if you could leave a thoughtful review. It means the world and really helps the podcast. So thanks so much again, and I shall see you on the next one.